Today, for our study in the book of Acts, we read from the book of John. Well, that makes total sense. At least we read there to start. In John, uh, this is where Jesus says that he is the good shepherd who knows his sheep, lays down his life for the sheep. And, uh, and this comment about him being a shepherd he made in the presence of his disciples and a few of the Jewish leaders. It was a purely Jewish audience before whom he was speaking. And then he said in John 10, verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So the question, what did the Lord mean by that statement? Other sheep, not of this fold. A fold, by the way, not a term that I was really that familiar with, but a fold is simply an enclosure. Uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's sort of like a fenced-in area. You might think of it as a pen, okay? It is pretty clear that Jesus means that he intends to shepherd and as well to die for some persons who are not Jewish. That's the point. Outsiders they are, others, other sheep. Jesus says they, these other sheep will hear his voice, they will join the flock. And the fulfillment of this prophecy, we get to see and experience and celebrate throughout the book of Acts. One of the major themes of Acts is how the gospel spread to all kinds of different people groups. And even though the Old Testament had foreseen such a day, and Jesus had told his disciples that this would be the case, when it actually started happening, it was surprising, and it was scary, and it was divisive. Today we will read about this barrier-breaking gospel, and see what we can learn of relevance for us now. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We've read this several times in the course of our studies. You're familiar with it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, anyone who heard this thoughtfully could figure out that if the disciples in the church are going to the remotest parts of the earth that they would have to be crossing some cultural and some language barriers, right? Cultural barriers, language barriers, even racial barriers, correct? At this point you say, yes, Pastor Dan. <laughs> and I just realized I never gave you a time to greet each other today, so we'll make have, try to make room for that at, at the end. But yeah, so it had to be. But for men who grew up in an intensely Jewish context with a keen sense of their identity as the called out chosen people of God, this word from Jesus might not resonate. For them, the Messiah, <laughs> the Messiah was going to bring victory for the Jews, domination for the Jews. That was their utopian vision. And Jesus seems to be charting a somewhat different course than they expected. Huh. Then comes Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost. What happens there? Well, it was time, there was a time when Jews from all over the region traveled to be a part of the Pentecost celebration in Jerusalem. These were Jews of the dispersion. These were somewhat less Jewish Jews who lived in more diverse cities. But they were still aligned with the God of Abraham and with the God of the Scriptures. When the Spirit of God fell on the disciples, they started speaking in languages that they did not personally know. The people from all of these different locales heard them 
and understood them. It was like a reversal of the event in Genesis, what we call the Tower of Babel experience, when God created divisions among the various language groups of the earth. Obviously, language is a big barrier. In Acts chapter 2, the, temporarily, the Spirit of God temporarily set aside that barrier. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we are born? Parthians, Mede, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judea, Cappadocia, Asia, Pontus, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God, and they all continue in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? So turn to your neighbor and ask that question. Go ahead. What does this mean? Say it. Go ahead. <clears throat> what does this mean? Part of what it meant is that God was doing a new thing. His gospel was going forth, and that gospel was going to be a barrier breaker. Pretty much the first thing Peter says in his sermon on Pentecost is a reference to the prophet Joel, and he said in chapter 2, verse 17, it shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth of my spirit on, what's the next word? All. I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. All suggests this is not just going to be a Jewish thing, it is an international thing. But as the story goes, we find the disciples were in no rush to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They hung out. They built up the church in Jerusalem, and that seemed nice. Everybody was thrilled with what God was doing there in Jerusalem. But the Lord of the church did not seem to be impressed. So he added a little incentive for them to move out with the great Commission. And so in Acts 8, verse 1, we read about a great persecution that began against the church in Jerusalem. Everybody was scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. The story then tracks Philip, who goes to Samaria. That's one of the places Jesus named back in chapter 1, verse 8. In Samaria, which is a city that is kind of half Jewish culturally. Philip preaches Jesus, and his witness there is confirmed by miracles, and many Samaritans came to faith. But then we encounter a theological and a missiological problem. So go there with me. What would be the theological and missiological problem? Well, we read this. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now I need you to pay close attention at this point. One of the doctrinal divisions among Jesus-loving people has to do with this thing we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some folks like us, for example, believe that the Spirit always fills, always inhabits true believers, and He does so from the very start of their Christian walk. Others, sometimes called Pentecostals, believe the Spirit normally comes to a believer sometime 
after conversion, whether that's a matter of days or years. That is, some followers of Jesus, therefore, have been spirit-baptized, and some have not. In defense of their view, they point us to the second and the eighth chapters of the book of Acts. In these places, we read about believers who believed in Christ but were without the baptism of the Spirit and then received the Spirit. In one of those accounts, it says they spoke in tongues as well. And so that becomes the Pentecostal model. In our seventh message in Themes from Acts, I spoke about this at some length, so you can go back there and check out your notes. I sought to show why we believe that all believers in Christ have received the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit. I won't repeat all of that, but I must explain Acts chapter 8, and the explanation is rooted in an understanding that when the gospel caught on in Samaria, this was a colossal big, big deal. It was something that would and could divide the Jewish Christian leadership, and, and it became a major part of the story in the book of Acts. This is why it says Peter and John went there to Samaria. The two leading apostles went to Samaria where Philip had preached in order to see for themselves what was going on. And so the sovereign father withheld the gift of the Spirit until Peter and John were able to be there so that these two apostles could see it and bear witness themselves of what the Holy Spirit had done. Well, let's continue down that trail a little bit further. In Acts chapter 10, the next major move occurs. Peter goes to the home of Cornelius, and he is full Gentile. He preaches to a Gentile audience who received the Word and the Spirit at the same time, because there was no reason at this point for the Spirit to be withheld since Peter was there to bear witness of what God was doing. But Peter's presence, when the Gentiles started coming into the church, proved to be absolutely critical. Chapter 11 shows us why. So look there, Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Do you see this? This was the big issue. In, in 2021, we divide over uh, COVID restrictions. Then it was, it was letting the Gentiles into the Jesus party. Far from celebrating Peter's initiative and his cross-cultural missionary success, they were angry because the church, they feared, was going to be polluted. First, it was the Samaritans. Now, we're letting in those full Gentiles. What is the world coming to? So, Peter, since he was there, was able to tell them about the vision that led him to go to the home of Cornelius and speak to the Gentiles in Caesarea and how he preached Jesus and how, as he did, the Spirit fell upon these people. Now, follow the language here. I'm quoting from Peter, Acts chapter 11, verse 17. Therefore, Peter says, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? <laughs> 
When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Those Jews weren't real excited to have us Gentiles come into the mix, were they? Some of them were not. They came to appreciate it eventually, but you see the reluctance. This was a monumental transition moment in redemptive history. The sheep of the other fold are now coming in. The Jewish sheep struggled to react in an open, <laughs> receiving manner. That's why I have no problem saying that the situation there in Samaria in Acts chapter 8 was not normative for us, but it was an exception made by the Spirit to promote understanding, to promote unity about the inclusion of non-Jewish brothers and sisters into the body of Christ. They will all be one flock with one shepherd, said our Lord. I hope that helps. All right, now Peter Peter was not one to go along with this easily himself. You saw that in his language in Acts chapter 11. Who was I that I could stand in their way as if I, I had certain impulses to do so, as if he himself was disturbed by what was happening, God's inclusion of the Gentiles. Indeed, God had to give Peter a vision to convince him to preach the gospel of Christ in the home of Cornelius the Gentile. In Acts 10, he was in the city of Joppa, when he fell into a trance, and he records it for us, he says, I saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill, and eat them. No, Lord, Peter says that more than anybody, doesn't he? No, Lord. Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. You got you to stop and ask yourself, what's going on when I'm more uh, biblical than God? You know? <laughs> uh, but the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Three t Peter was always getting stuff three times, right? Jesus said, Simon, do you love me? Three times. <clears throat> He denied the Lord three times. Peter's a guy of threes. He needed, he needed three visions to get this message through. And then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Kind of a strange story, but this is how the Lord was telling Peter that it was his will for him to go to the unclean, namely to the Gentiles. By the way, this is also why we get to eat bacon. So it's a good story, all right? <laughs> Great story. Well, you see how reluctant Peter is. There was a hard and high barrier between Jews and Gentiles, particularly on the Jewish side. The gospel and the new covenant tears that barrier down. And all God's Gentiles said, amen. <laughs> so they agreed to let the Gentiles be a part of what God was doing. But that presented some real problems for the infant church. There was confusion surrounding what to expect of Gentile converts. In Antioch, some Jewish teachers came in claiming that Gentile converts need to pass through the Judaism gate before they can be Christians. Specifically, they said that converted males had to be circumcised to be a part of the covenant community. 
This is what Gentiles had to do for many centuries if they wanted to be part of the Old Testament covenant community. But Paul stood firmly against that. And so the church had its first great doctrinal council. Acts chapter 15, verse 6. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. And they went on to conclude that the Gentiles did not need to be circumcised, that becoming Jewish was not required to become a Christian. The Gentiles may join in with the Jews in this because this gospel of Jesus builds bridges and breaks down barriers. Now we see then that from the start there were subgroups in the church that vied for preeminence. There was also what we commonly call racism. It was a problem then as it is a problem now which brings up a chance to discuss Christian nationalism. It's fascinating to me all the terms that are in use these days that five years ago none of us had ever heard of, right? I mean, there's a bunch of these, transgendered, woke, populism, alt-right, cisgender, gaslighting, intersectionality, white fragility. Another one is Christian nationalism. I've read a number of articles about this thing, Christian nationalism. Most of the articles are opposed to it. A couple were actually in favor of it. And usually, I knew what the author was going to say as soon as the author provided a definition of the term. One way Christian nationalism is defined is the idea that the interest of the kingdom of Jesus and those of the United States of America are identical. I am for God and country right? I'm for God and country. Is that okay? <laughs> Not if you think the ways of your country and the ways of God are always identical. Not if you think God's only concern is about your particular country. There's much talk these days about identity. How do you identify? For we who are Christians, our identity, well, it could include a number of things. Uh, it might include being citizens of the United States of America. I was talking with the McHales and with Alam this morning who became citizens. They're both dual citizens of uh, Syria and Egypt re re respectively. But many of us think of ourselves, who are you? Well, I'm, I, I'm an American. I'm part of the USA. Uh, your identity could include being a part of Steeler Nation. It could include being a Mac user. But what is the primary what is the primary sense of our identity for us? We belong to Jesus. And who then are our people? Who's our people? Well, they're His people. National identity, patriotism does not compare. I have more in common 
with a nine-year-old Swahili-speaking girl living in the deep jungle of the Congo who loves Jesus than I have with a white, middle-aged, middle-class guy in my neighborhood who dresses like me, talks like me, and votes like me if he does not love Jesus. My people, international, race, interracial, transcultural. Ours is a unity of faith and devotion to our Lord. It's not found in geography. It's not found in nationality. It's not found in race. It's not found in ancestry. Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that our unity is found in having, and he got seven things there. Read it out loud with me. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. That is one of the great lessons of the book of Acts and the entire New Testament. My identity shifts when Jesus becomes my king. You ever hang out with Ron Jensen, Dan? You ever meet him in the course of your Christian travels? He used to be uh, he used to be the head of Campus Crusade for Christ at one point, I believe, or some major leader right next to Bill Bright in the day. Story he told years ago, I'll never forget. He said, uh, he was also the president. He was the president of the uh, Campus Crusade Seminary out in California, I believe. And uh, Ron told the story about getting on an airplane, sitting next to a well-dressed man, and they struck up a conversation, and Ron asked him what he did for work, and he explained that he was the president of a fairly sizable corporation. And as the two men talked about that, the other gentleman turned to Ron and said, what do you do? And uh, Ron was feeling playful, and so he told him, well, I'm an ambassador. Oh, really? What country? He said, no country, much bigger than a country. Bigger than a country? What, you're an ambassador for a continent? Oh, no. Way bigger than a continent. <laughs> bigger than a continent? What could be bigger than a continent? He says, I represent a kingdom. And not just any kingdom, the biggest kingdom of all, the kingdom of God. I've got royal blood flowing through these veins. <laughs> Amen to that. Our identity is something vastly bigger and more wonderful than being a part of the United States of America. We are citizens of an eternal kingdom. Because we are, we care about the United States of America and its people, but we also care about the people of Ghana and Honduras and New Zealand. We want them all to know the king, whose we are and whom we serve. One other note on this, the principle of our identity also spills over into political differences. If you are a dyed-in-the-wool, right-wing, Reagan Republican, you have more in common with that left-wing, Democrat-voting servant of Jesus than you do with your unsaved neighbor who votes like you and thinks like you on political matters. You can be annoyed 
by the perceived wrong thinking of your fellow Christians. Many of us are in both directions. Sure you can. These disagreements that we experience challenge our unity, especially every four years. But my primary identity, it's not with a political party. My party can be right or wrong. My country can be wrong. My favorite pundit or pastor can be wrong. But as for me and my house, we will stand with Jesus and with all who stand with Him. Even while I may wish that everybody would think more like me. The great divide in the early years of the church was the Jewish and the Gentile divide. It was a struggle. It was a huge struggle for the early church. The apostles believed in Jewish exceptionalism. They did. They believed in Jewish exceptionalism. Do you know why? Because the Jews <laughs> were exceptional. You can't read the book and, and, and deny that. God chose them out of all the people of the earth to be His special possession. And, and when the Jews and the Gentiles are mentioned side by side in Scripture, the Jews are always mentioned first. Jesus came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. The apostles were sent to Jerusalem with the gospel first. But the message of Peter and Paul came to be that despite the great legacy that Jewish Christians had, they were equally needy sinners and on the same level with Gentiles in the family of Jesus. Most of us were raised to believe in some type of American exceptionalism. You can believe that God had a special plan for this nation. You can believe that God providentially provided for its establishment. There is plenty of evidence to lead us to think such, but you must also confess that even George and Ben and Thomas and all those guys we revere were rotten sinners who needed Christ. You must also confess that in the church, being American means basically nothing, nothing special. There is only one name that we revere. We have brothers and sisters here today who are not American. Our two Ghanaian families didn't make it this morning. I was going to pick on them a little bit. <laughs> but we have brothers and sisters here that are not American, certainly not native-born American. And they are no less. You know that. You believe that. Ephesians 2 is where we'll wrap up today. Now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. As the name of Jesus is lifted up, brothers and sisters, the barriers, they fall. Let's seek to live into that reality with great joy.
Father, we come to you today grateful for this gospel that Paul and Peter and the others preached. Grateful, O oh God, that it was a gospel that was big enough to include Gentiles as well as Jews. Grateful that it embraces sinners of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And Lord, we pray that the barriers would continue to fall in Jesus' name, even as they did 2,000 years ago. May they continue to fall and break down, that our divisions of culture and race and even language would be broken up and torn down in Jesus' name. Give us, Father, insight as to how we can continue to be agents of barrier-breaking in Christ's name. Amen.